1: Hey everyone and welcome to Crime Wire. Um This show is going to be a little bit different because our host, the esteemed Dennis Griffin, is not with us today. So I'm going to be your co-host. I'm Delilah Jones from Imagine Publicity. um, And I'm usually the co-host each week. But uh, with Denny being out, we're going to wing it on our own. Uh, We've got a really interesting and very informative Um, episodes for you today. We are speaking to Rachel Aplein from um, DNA Labs International and she is going to really go into in depth and explain what their company does and and certain aspects um, of what DNA technology can do in the solution and resolution of crimes out there. DNA Labs International is a woman and family-owned and operated private forensic DNA lab. Um, they specialize in forensic DNA analysis for law enforcement agencies, attorneys, and government forensic labs. Rachel, welcome to CrimeWire. And for the, for the sake of our listeners, can you give a little overview and background of your company?
2: Yes, no problem. Good morning. DNA Labs International does primarily forensic case work. We do have some private cases, and we do specialize also in cases for defense attorneys as well as doing case reviews of other forensic laboratories' work. And for the most part, we get crimes uh, submitted to us, cases where we got evidence brought in by detectives or shipped to us from agencies all around the country and really all around the world. We work with eight Caribbean nations as well. And we process that evidence here at our crime laboratory, report our findings, and on occasion get to testify in court as well to present our findings.
1: That's great. And you say you're a woman-owned, family-owned company. How does that work out for you?
2: Yes, it's definitely all in the family here. Our president uh, is Kristen Charlson, and her daughter, Allison Nunes, is our chief operations officer. Uh, Her other daughter also works as our evidence custodian here in the laboratory. And forensics in general is just a woman business. There's not very men here. We have very few. We always joke only a few Y chromosomes in the laboratory. Uh, It tends to be a more woman-dominated business. I,
1: I never realized that. It's, it's interesting to know that it's kind of a woman-dominated business. How how does your lab? Is, how does it differ from most of the other labs out there, or the the government um, the government-run labs? Do you operate any differently, or um, is there an advantage? Is there an advantage to coming to you rather than?
2: Uh, There's definitely an advantage to being private. We have more tools at our disposal. I'm very lucky that if I attend a conference or a seminar and I see a new technology that I think could be useful in casework, I can go to my bosses and say, hey, I think this is a good idea. I think this could help us solve cases. What do you think? Can we bring this online? Uh, We have less red tape to cut through than a lot of government laboratories. And we also have the ability to take the time on a case. Uh, We're not meeting a certain quota. We don't have a six-month backlog. A lot of government laboratories are very overwhelmed, to no fault of their own. It's primarily budget restrictions and just the sheer volume of cases that are being brought in. Uh, We pride ourselves on having a very quick turnaround time. So we do cases sometimes in as short as 48-hour turnarounds. Uh, A lot of times there's high-profile cases, or cases that are very time-sensitive. Um, sometimes police might know exactly who they think a perpetrator of a crime is, but without the evidence, you can't go out and arrest that individual. So sometimes we have a very quick turnaround to get evidence processed through, whereas a backlogged government laboratory might not be able to get the attention to that case that we're able to. Well,
1: that's fantastic. Um, just a rundown on the type of cases that your company works with, sexual assaults homicides, gun crimes, property crimes, cold cases, bone identification, and touch DNA. Um, I I would really like to go in depth on a couple of these, and um, one that really sticks out to me is the identification of remains. Um, I volunteer for Q Center for Missing Persons and I know how important that is for families especially the ones that are lucky enough to be able to have those remains found. Um, I worked with a family a few years back that you know they they waited six years before the remains were found and then of course had to wait another six eight months before they were identified by DNA. Um, Tell me how you are helping in that area?
2: Well, identification from skeletal remains is something I'm really passionate about as well. Unfortunately, all around the country, there's John Doe's and Jane Doe's of skeletal remains that haven't been paired up yet with the family of that missing individual. And that's a challenge across the United States. Uh, We have organizations like NamUs and things like that that are trying to pair up these cases to get closure to families, but it's very difficult uh, I was fortunate enough to work for the Armed Forces DNA Identification Laboratory for almost five years. So, I started out working on cases from skeletal remains from World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam. And this is something the United States feels passionate about, trying to identify every missing service member. So, as you can imagine, skeletal remains from, you know, sometimes over 100 years ago can be very challenging to work with. A lot of times forensic samples are things like cotton swabs or blood, that's easier for us to get a DNA profile from, opposed to bone is this hard mineral material that we have to break down in the process in order to be able to release that DNA, to try to develop a profile to identify that individual. So, when I joined DNA Labs International in 2014, myself and another analyst we ended up hiring as well from the Armed Forces DNA Identification Laboratory worked to modify and update our bone protocol. So, we're now able to develop uh, DNA profiles from skeletal remains in under 24 hours for our extraction, whereas previously it could take over 72 hours. And that's an example of just trying to advance the science and make the best of what we have and the technology that we have available. Not many laboratories in the United States have successful bone protocols. Uh, AFTL, the Armed Forces DNA Identification Laboratory, is one of the best. University of North Texas as well. However, the Armed Forces primarily take military cases, and University of North Texas is overwhelmed by submissions across the United States. So we get bones submitted to us now from all over the U.S. as well, because we're able to process these uh, remains quicker. If you have families that have been waiting decades for answers, uh, why make them wait any longer? We can try to turn that around um, a lot of times in two weeks, four weeks, depending on the case, and try to bring closure and identification for the individuals involved. That's fantastic. Can you can you explain
1: maybe a little bit? I'm just playing, you know, Joe public out here that really doesn't know that much about DNA technology. And I guess, you know, the first time our country really got into DNA knowledge was the O.J. Simpson case, of course. But what has happened? What has improved in the technology say from from that time or even before till now, that you're able to process quicker and, and get answers quicker?
2: A lot of it has to do with the sensitivity of our systems. So, originally, we were looking at much larger fragments, and uh, we talk about kind of like the ice age of, or the stone age of DNA testing, where we were doing these methods that took days and days and days, and you had to have very high quality samples in order to be able to develop a DNA profile. Now we're able to develop DNA profiles from sometimes as small as a single cell from an individual. So, if I were to place my hand on the table and touch that table, and you were to come after me and swab that table, you would be able to develop my DNA profile from that. Our testing is just that much more sensitive now with advancements in technology.
1: That's amazing. It really is.
2: Is there is
1: there a difference in the way that DNA is collected now, or is it all, do you still always have to do swabs?
2: It doesn't always have to be swabs, and there's definitely differences in it. We know to be more careful, so it's kind of a double-edged sword. We're very excited that our testing is so much more sensitive, but now we also have to be that much more cautious. Uh, We all cringe when we look at photos from cold cases 50 years ago and you see the police picking up an evidence and they're not wearing gloves. So things like that where you don't want to develop the profile of the individual that collected it. So we need to be cautious at crime scenes. Uh, We provide training to the agencies that we work with to ensure the evidence is collected in a way that maintains the integrity of that item and needs to withstand not only our testing, but also hold up in the courtroom. If we're getting a profile, we want to make sure that it's the correct profile and isn't a result of poor, proper, or improper evidence collection.
1: Well, maybe you can explain. I noticed in the notes that I have, you have a um, technique called MVac, a wet vacuum DNA collection tool. Uh, that was very interesting to me. Um, is the type of surfaces that you use that, is that different than than what we're accustomed
2: to? It's very different, and that's one of the things where being in a private laboratory has its advantages because a lot of labs don't have the time or the resources to bring a system like the MVAC online. So for us as a private laboratory, that's, again, one where we get submissions on more specialty cases and cold cases Um, Sometimes I'll call it the Hail Mary pass on the MVAC because it's a more specific test. A lot of times you're going to go in and try to swab first, and when you don't get results, we need something more sensitive. So What the MVAC does is if you can picture like a carpet cleaning commercial where they show all the fabric woven together and you're trying to get that deep stain out, that's what we're doing with the MVAC. It's looking for that cellular debris trapped in the weaving of fabrics. And a lot of times, we don't know exactly where people touched. If we had been at the crime, it would be a lot easier to solve, right? So, where we weren't there. We don't know exactly what happened. So, when we have these large items like cars, mattresses, bed sheets, um, items of clothing, it's helpful for us to use this system, which is essentially like a wet vacuum. So, we have this small sampling head that's about the size of a quarter, and it sprays a liquid that's free of DNA onto the material while simultaneously vacuuming it. So Any cellular debris that's present in that large area is going to get sucked up into that vacuum, and then it gets processed through a filter that collects all the DNA material, and we're able to then extract that filter. So This is particularly helpful in cases, a lot of times, with robbery homicide cases where an individual's pockets are turned inside out. We've been really successful with unvacuing the inside of their pockets to get that DNA of the individual who stuck their hand in there. Uh, It's very helpful in cases where the victim was wrapped up in a bed sheet or uh, where the crime was committed on a mattress, we are able to unvac that entire surface area to look for that foreign DNA of that unknown individual. And then hopefully, in cases where there isn't a suspect, it can be uploaded to CODIS, or when there is a suspect, then we can compare directly to that individual to try to bring some closure or at least more information for the investigative team.
1: Fantastic. Um, I I didn't realize there was anything like that out there. And then, you know, going into some of the cold cases you work, and I'm sure a lot of those are based around skeletal remains and um, other remains. What other? You also have another STR mix a breakthrough in forensics. Can you explain what that is and what that does? I would imagine with some of these very, very old cases, this is very valuable.
2: It's incredibly valuable. And I always say, too, we have things here where we've literally been watching an episode on investigation discovery and seen something on a cold case and been like, why didn't they test that? We could test that. That's the kind of stuff that we do here, and tools like MVAC and STRmix help us to solve those cold cases. So I always say if you're a victim of crime or a family member of a victim of crime, the best thing you can do is to get a detective to be passionate about your case. We have detectives from all over the country. They'll bring in case files to us and say, Rachel, or you know, to one of my coworkers, it's really important to me that you go through this case file go through all these pictures and see what hasn't been done, what can we do differently. So MVAC is one of those options, and then STR mix is another option. Unfortunately, with DNA becoming so sensitive, it's great that we're getting more information, but sometimes you get mixtures. So if I go back to that analogy where I say I'm touching the table, well, if five other people touched the table before me, i need to get the DNA profile of all of those individuals. So that can be very difficult to analyze as a DNA analyst. We're seeing all these DNA types, and we need to try to figure out who came from who, which types can be associated with which individuals. So, STRmix is one of those tools that are disposable. It's a computer software program. Uh, it performs a series of complicated calculations to try to discern who is present in that DNA mixture. And I personally can do that calculation by hand, but to do it once would take me a couple hours. And the computer software program performs that calculation over a million times over. And that way I'm able to say this mixture is more likely to contain this person and two unknown people opposed to three unknown people. So I can look at a DNA profile and say, I can see this person's types here, but I can't go to court and just say, I think they're in there. You need to have hard evidence, a statistic, to be able to reflect the weight to that statement. So this tool gives us a way to statistically report out how someone is included into that DNA mixture. This is particularly helpful in cases with guns. So a lot of times with gun crime, especially in the United States, guns change hands a lot. So if someone uses a gun in a shooting, they don't want to be then holding on to that gun. So they'll give it to another friend, they'll sell it, Uh, A lot of times convicted felons, because they're not allowed to be in possession of guns at all, will have their girlfriend hold on to the gun for them. So a lot of times with gun profiles, we get four or five individuals on that gun surface. So whereas in the past we would say this is an inconclusive mixture, I can't make any conclusive statement about who is present in this mixture, now we're able to go back and say, no, this individual is here, and this is how likely that they're there.
1: Well, that's... Uh, it, it's to me. It seems like a needle in a haystack, or putting together a ten thousand piece jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> <And>, uh, <laughs> it's it, I'm just amazed at the tools and and the technology that are available now. And what? Um, who has access to your services? Is it, do, do, would a family need to have their detective go, go to you or a, maybe a private investigator? I'm sure they're not going to go themselves. But what's the process of, of maybe the chain of command is even a better word to get that DNA to you?
2: We do work with detectives and private investigators, um, and we do take on personal cases. However, it's important to remember that the evidence is with the police, so if your loved one was involved in a crime, that evidence is going to be at the police station, so you need the detective that's in charge of that case to submit it. However, things like pressuring in social media or the public and getting attention to your case in the media is going to put pressure on that detective to submit that case, and we can accept a case from anywhere in the world. So once that attention is brought to your case, anyone can submit the evidence to us from the law enforcement field.
1: Fantastic. And, I, I, you know, again, I like to come from the view of the public who doesn't know anything about this so that we can get those questions answered. Um, Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the sexual assault kit backlog or rape kit backlog I think you know this has been an ongoing issue uh, nationally for several years now when was all of this backlog discovered
2: I, I think it's been kind of a known secret in the forensic field and the law enforcement field for a long time however it wasn't until just this past five years that the sexual assault kit backlog started to be counted So we all knew that there was these vast amounts of sexual assault kits that weren't being addressed um, around the United States. However, no one knew the sheer quantity. Now they're estimating that somewhere over 400,000 sexual assault kits remain untested in the United States, and a lot of that number has gone down. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of evidence vaults and really old cases, it's difficult to even count this. You need resources to even determine the total number of kits that have gone untested. So, that alone needs funding to determine the number. So, we now think it's somewhere over 400,000. We don't know exactly the precise number. We may never know. What we do know is that that number is going down. And part of that is private laboratories like DNA Labs International working with agencies. Uh, we help agencies to file their grant paperwork to get the funding necessary in order to be able to submit those rape kits to us. As I mentioned, science is getting better. So for us, sexual assault kits is one of the more timely pieces of evidence to process. It takes much longer. There's additional uh, testing that goes along with sexual assault kits opposed to just taking a swab forward from DNA from a touch sample. So we've now made advancements here where a lot of this is done on robotic platforms to make us able to get through this testing quicker. We work with agencies to try to get the funding that they need to. Millions and millions of dollars of funding was made available to states all across the U.S. this past year to help them to get through their backlogs. And it's unfortunate now that we're seeing as these cases are being processed and these DNA profiles are being entered into CODIS, all these repeat offenders are being discovered. So these are kits that should have been tested years ago. And hopefully in the coming years, we're going to clear that backlog and keep it cleared. Oh, that would
1: be fantastic. I w- was telling you off air about a, a colleague of mine who, I think she was, thirteen when she was raped, and it was twenty years. They they finally got it done after twenty years. Um, you know, luckily this person was was the type of person that has a tremendous amount of faith. She was able to turn this whole. Um, experience around to a positive uh, fight, more or less, because she's been out there in the front lines with other sexual assault victims and, you know, created her own organization and speaks to the media and so forth. So, uh, you know, I, I like to think that she had a part in bringing this to the attention of um, of our government. Um, it, it's just something that to me is is, is totally disgusting. I mean, to, to go through this experience to begin with for a victim is, is horrendous and very traumatic. And then to wait 20 years to find out who the perpetrator was, and then to find out they've been out there committing crimes all over the place. So, so much could be prevented, um, you know, had this not happened, but you know, it is, it, it is what it is now. And, um, I'm glad that we're working on correcting it and getting them up to date. Um, You know, maybe you can go into it a little more in depth as far as um, how the, how this impacts victims.
2: Well, in addition to needing the actual evidence to be tested, another problem is with many states, there's a statute of limitations on processing uh, rape in the courtroom. So, A lot of times, if this kit now has gone back to after 15 years, if the statute of limitations on sexual assault in that state is 10 years, they can't prosecute. So now we're going back to all these backlogs from cases that were never tested, and they might know who the perpetrator of this crime is, but nothing can be done about it because it's exceeded the statute of limitations. So in addition to needing funding to get through these kits, and not only to get through them, but to make sure we don't develop a backlog again. People also need to be talking to their senators and their representatives about changing the law to remove the statute of limitations on sexual assault in every state in the United States.
1: Oh, I totally agree. And I'm just really pleased that it did come out. The information is out there and that we, we really are doing something to correct it. Um, going into another aspect of what you do, Uh, I think one of the things that fascinates me that I first heard of was touch DNA. And I think you you did touch on it a little bit with the touching of the table thing. But how complex is that? And how, how sensitive does the equipment and everything have to be to be able to collect a touch DNA sample?
2: It's incredibly sensitive. We can now develop DNA profiles from just one to two or three cells uh, from an individual. So, as we touch everything throughout the day, we're leaving traces of ourselves from the oils in our hand, from the skin cells that we shed, and all the items that we touch throughout the day. And I talked a little bit about gun crime. It's probably one of the best examples of touch DNA, because in that case, unless the weapon has been involved in cases, like situations where someone's been pistol whipped or something like that, it's primarily touch DNA samples from the individuals that have handled that gun. So in cases like that we want the best testing possible. We want to be able to interpret those mixtures. Um, you look at like examples for Chicago. They believe that over 1400 just around 1400 individuals are responsible for all of the violent gun crime in Chicago. So Illinois is an example of a state that does not have STR mix online like we do. And many states don't. We're actually the fifth laboratory in the United States to validate validate this computer software program. We are the first private laboratory in the United States to uh, validate this program as well. So because this is a newer science, we have to give the government laboratories the time and the funding to be able to catch up. But in the meantime, they can utilize a private laboratory so that these cases don't go unsolved. So if we go back to the situation in Chicago where you have these fourteen hundred individuals that are handling guns, almost all gun profiles are DNA mixtures in the United States. So when you look at some other countries where it's more difficult to get a hold of a gun, someone might hold on to that gun for life. Those are amazing DNA samples. That's that's easy for the DNA analyst, right? We get excited about those cases because single source beautiful profile. However, in the United States, it's very easy to get a gun. No one feels the need to hold on to them, and it's the opposite. They don't want to hold on to a gun that's been used in a crime, so they're passed around. So, In those cases, we're now seeing mostly these complex DNA mixtures. So, When you look at violent crime situations like Chicago, New Orleans, LA, and things like that, it's critical that they have software programs that are able to deconvolute these really complex DNA mixtures. Otherwise, all that evidence is wasted. There's no point in even testing some of those profiles, because the chances are you're just going to get a DNA mixture you're not able to report out. So We have agencies that will say, I've got this DNA mixture, there's at least four people in here. I think I can see this person in it, but I can't do anything about it. What can you do? So, we can either then go back and test the remaining evidence from that case. Or a lot of times they'll send us the actual DNA extract and we'll reprocess that extract in our laboratory, make the necessary comparisons, and report that out.
1: Again, it's just amazing. Is there, like, particular cases that you maybe get personally attached to? Um, So rather than just, you know, testing the DNA, sending in the results and forget about it, are there
2: any cases that you just kind of follow through on? Uh, personally, I try not to. You have to be removed from the casework to an extent because if I absorbed the impact of the victim's story from every sexual assault I process, I would probably go crazy and retire at like 32. So you have to have removed. I need to be unbiased. Um, I don't want to look at evidence and have any, uh, you know, desire for the case to go one way or the other. Uh, however, as a professional, there's cases that I do enjoy more. I enjoy more difficult cases. I prefer cold cases a lot of times because I like looking for that needle in the haystack that you mentioned. I like being able to find what no one has noticed before or testing a piece of evidence no one thought to test before. So For me, I like the challenge, uh, so I prefer cold cases or really old cases, uh, but that's just me in particular. I've worked with skeletal remains a lot, so I love working on bone cases. Um, There's definitely like a sense of gratification when you're able to get a DNA profile that someone's tested before and wasn't able to get anything. So I do enjoy, especially since we've developed our bone protocol and made adjustments since I've moved to this laboratory, um, it does give me job satisfaction to be able to say, look how great these results are now because we've made these modifications. So on that element, I do get more like personally invested in the challenge of the casework, but not the individual cases.
1: I see. Well, how many, how many of these cold cases do you think that are out there that, that maybe have been tested once and kind of put into the back of the drawer of the file cabinet? Um, and how and how in what way can we get them to bring them out of the back and start bringing things, uh, you know, maybe you, like you say, the DNA's already been tested, but nothing was found, but now maybe we can. Um, Do you think there's a big backlog of that
2: as well? There's a huge backlog for that, and part of that comes down to funding and also just understanding the science in the field. So forensics is constantly changing. I'm blown away every time I attend a conference and see what new testing is becoming available. If you're a detective, you should be resubmitting your case every five years. The science dramatically changes from every couple of years, so every five years you should be resubmitting that case, or at the very least, contacting a forensic analyst and saying, this is what I have, what's new, what can we do? We can always go back to it. the testing always gets better, so it's definitely worth revisiting these older cases. Um, Also, if you're working with a state laboratory that didn't have certain testing available, reach out to a private lab and see. We do free case consultations, so I get calls all the time from detectives around the country that want to know, I have this case, this is what's been done before, is there anything different that you can do? And I can let them know, and we'll be honest and straightforward with them and say, you know, sometimes there isn't anything you can do. If you had one piece of evidence and there was just simply no DNA there, there's no DNA there sometimes. But a lot of times there is something else we can try and there is something else we can do. And If we can't this time, try me again in five years and we'll have another look at it. We have a lot of cases that have now been up to 15 submissions on it from older cold cases because the detective keeps coming back to that and a lot of times we do end up getting something. so It's worth resubmitting or at least having that conversation with a DNA analyst to see what your options are.
1: Well, what would you say to you know a desperate family member who's been trying and trying to to get something over the years on on a missing persons or an unsolved homicide case, um, and and perhaps they have a good detective, perhaps they don't because I it, you know my experience has been both ways. Um, what? kind of persuasion I guess should they use with their detective or if they even wanted to pay for that themselves what kind of expense would they be looking
2: at? It, the most part needs to be coming through your local law enforcement agency so the key is having a detective on your side and having someone that feels passionate about your case. Uh, the nature of law enforcement is that good detectives get promoted right so they move on. So unfortunately, a lot of times, if you have these old cold cases, the chances are you don't have the same detective. So five years down the road, someone else might pick up that case. So following up, finding out who's in charge of your case, what status your case is in, is what's the most important, and getting people to care about it. Uh, Things like Facebook and the news are crucial to cases that sit untested or with little to no attention on them. So if you can get the media to be passionate about it, that's going to put pressure on your local police department, and then your police department is going to seek out and see what can be done for that case. Uh, As I mentioned before, we do get detectives that come in and bring their whole case file in for us to review, and sometimes we do see something that maybe would have gone missed before if we didn't have all that information. Uh, We're very lucky that we have the time and resources to speak so in Uh, thoroughly with detectives to get all the information that we need. We have a great team here that will reach out to find all the little details that make the difference sometimes. Little things like, did the suspect grab the left sleeve versus the right sleeve? That's all crucial information when we need to know where to screen for that DNA evidence. So having the ability to talk to law enforcement is helpful with that. And if you have a detective that's patient and passionate about your case, they're going to talk to us too because they're going to want those results.
1: Excellent. And for our law enforcement friends out there, which we have many, could you give us contact information? How would how would a, a, a detective or an agency get in touch with you
2: to do this? Yes, no problem. We love hearing from law enforcement. They can call us anytime. The phone number at our laboratory is nine five four four two six five one six three. They can also check out our website online at DNA Labs International.com. Uh, we are on Facebook as well, and we can be emailed at info at DNA Labs International.com as well.
1: Is there any specific protocol that they would need to follow, any procedures, or just make contact and go from there?
2: All they have to do is make that initial contact, and we'll take care of everything from there on out. Um, depending on the types of case and things like that, sometimes we want to put someone in contact with a particular analyst or a particular serologist. Uh, if you're talking about sexual assault backlogs, we have specialists that know which grants are the best, depending on which state you're in, for funding. So all of that's going to depend on what exactly the law enforcement's needs are, and we take care of that on our side. We'll give the full client experience, to make sure that we got them in contact with the right person on our team. Fantastic. I could listen to this all day, but
1: unfortunately our time has come to an end. Um, I really want to thank you for, for taking your time out of, I know your very busy schedule to, um, to appear on here with us. And, Um, I hope that maybe in the future we can have you back again and and maybe go even more in-depth in some of the specific things that you do. Um, That would be wonderful. So I'd like to, uh, between Denny and I, keep in touch.
2: Yes, definitely. We are happy to talk to you, and we love getting information out there to the police community and uh, victim advocacy groups and anyone in the public that's willing to listen. The information is key. Where where exactly are you located? We're located in Deerfield Beach in South Florida, just north of Fort Lauderdale, Miami. Okay,
1: great. The um, reason I ask is I'm always looking for good speakers and presenters and instructors for our national missing persons conference that we hold each year, and I think it's a it's a great place to be introduced to a lot of law enforcement. We have a lot of those who at, attend uh, the conference, along with families and um, advocates of all kind. So I am definitely keeping your name and number handy <laughs> um, for the next conference. So we would love to have you there and love to have you back on crime Wire as well. So thank you so much, Rachel. Um, thank so much. I, I really appreciate your time.
2: Thank you. Have a good day.
1: You too. And hopefully we will see everyone back on the next episode of crime Wire. introducing walmart neighborhood
2: market find a full grocery selection with fresh local produce choice usda meat and even made to order pizza all at walmart's everyday low prices get to know your new
1: local grocery store at our grand opening celebration with fun activities for the whole family including samples and giveaways while supplies last walmart neighborhood market same low prices fast fresh and easy shopping opening january 11th at west 5th street and hilton street in west lumberton